0: Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present.
1: Hey, Sarah, how you
0: doing?
1: Hello, Rebecca. I'm here. <laughs> you're here. It's It's been a
0: lot of not here, but you're here. Yes, my kitty got sick. We don't like sick kitties. No, he went to the kitty ER, so... He is getting all better. And we're back to celebrate episode 76.
1: 76? Yes. Like 76 tron bones. I can break into song once more. No, I'm sure it's copyrighted. Well that you, you can give like what 5% of a copyrighted item before yeah, that you get is in trouble. That's not
0: what we're here to talk about today. I'm
1: glad you're here to keep me in line, Sarah.
0: <laughs> we're to here, your to- listeners.
1: We are here to talk to you today about the state hospital program that we had on Saturday, attended by 55 amazing human beings in a hybrid setting that challenged our technical and chaos controlling savvy.
0: There were people that braved the cold and came to us in person, and we had technology set up so that we could have it uh, over Zoom as well. And Rebecca, you took that piece. How did that go? did.
1: It did. It was good. Actually, we have been experimenting with the owl meeting camera, uh, which for those of you that are so lucky that you don't have to do hybrid meetings, it literally looks like an owl. And when you plug it in, it says, and it makes me laugh every time we do it. And it's got some really great speakers and some microphones on it. And so it's all in one technology. Put that down next to the laptop and plug it in and it knows who's talking and it spins, like the little cameras inside spin around. So whenever Sarah said something as a presenter, it would go and it would spin over to her. And if someone asked a question in the audience, it would been and spin over to them. So you didn't have to search on your grid of pictures on your computer to see who was actually talking, uh, which is remarkable. Um, and then we had Rich Oxley, our board president, He was doing some videotaping, and Sarah had her audio recording in her pocket.
0: And what are we going to do with all of this recording, Sarah? Yeah, our goal is to go through our backlog of programs here at the museum that we've uh, created over the years and make them accessible for people for the future. So having a program in person, recording it, uh, getting a video of it with captions available on the vault uh, for people to watch whenever they want. So we have for today's episode a portion of the program we gave all about the history of the Anoka State Hospital here. Uh, the podcast episode is going to go through the beginning of the history up until about 1920, uh, where the full program uh, continues on to about 2000, uh, the entire life of when it was used as a hospital. Um, so, if you want to see that, it will be available shortly on the vault once all the editing is complete. Takes a little more than a week to do that. Shall we dive in? I think we shall dive in. Hear about the history of the Anoka State Hospital. Thank you so much for braving the cold and coming out with us and joining us digitally. I really appreciate it. Before we even begin to speak about the Anoka State Hospital, it's necessary to talk about mental illness. The state hospital system would not have existed without the very full presence of those individuals in our society who struggle and sometimes fail to care for themselves. And the real struggle of what we as individuals and we as a society can do to help those people who are in need. And sometimes we do a really good job at that, and sometimes we don't. And that's part of the history that we're talking about. The treatment of mental illness and our attitudes towards those who suffer from it is something that we still navigate today. And as historians, it is our goal with this presentation about the history of the state hospital not to pass judgment, but to learn about the facts of what happened and all of the different changes that occurred there throughout the years. It's important to remember that hindsight is always clearer than uh, when you're living it. So, um, There are many things that happened in the past that we wished we could change or maybe do differently than if we encountered those same situations today. So, in order to talk about the Anoka State Hospital, let us begin with a pretty obvious question. Why Anoka? right? By September of 1896, Minnesota was already home to three state hospitals. They were in Fergus Falls, Rochester, and St. Peter. Before we had those, Uh, There were people that needed mental health care, and Minnesota actually sent patients from our territory into Iowa to be cared for in hospitals there. But they got full and couldn't care for our residents anymore. So that really spurred needing to have hospitals of our own in Minnesota. So the very first of those was St. Peter. They were large buildings. All three were built along with this style called the Kirkbride model. They were large buildings. And uh, they were named after Dr. Thomas Storey Kirkbride. He wrote a treatise called On the Construction, Organizing, and General Arrangements of Hospitals for the Insane. It's a big title. It was originally published in 1854. He wrote, and this is weird to our ears. Although it is not desirable to have an elaborate or costly style of architecture, it is important that the building should be in good taste and that it should impress favorably not only on the patients but their friends and others who may visit it. A hospital for the insane should have a cheerful, comfortable appearance. Everything repulsive and prison-like should be carefully avoided. And these are those buildings touched it and it (laughs) changed technology. They are large buildings. Uh, The first in St. Peter was due uh, largely to its proximity of Iowa so that we could get the patients that we sent there back to relieve the roofing. By the end of the 19th century, the facilities were overcrowded and they were housing more than 3,000 patients between them. In addition to the need for more space, uh, we wanted a location closer to the Twin Cities. These are very rural and a lot of patients were coming from a central location, so they would have to travel great distances to go to those hospitals. So 25% or nearly of all the patients in that system at the time were coming from Minneapolis or St. Paul, so having a more centrally located hospital would be a good idea. So when serious discussions began about that new location, the towns of Anoka and Hastings quickly became the front runners. Some other people that threw their hat in the ring were uh, Farmington, Chaska, Shakopee, Jordan, and Hutchinson. But it really came down to Anoka and Hastings. And Anoka went on the sell. The city had many things to recommend it, It was on the route between the Twin Cities and Duluth. Uh, There were eight daily passenger trains that ran between here and the Twin Cities. Uh, We had the space. We had the materials to support a new hospital. The city at the time was home to about 4,000 people, so it wasn't too small. Uh, And it contained agricultural land. We had lumber and brickyard, so we could be supplying building materials and it would make construction easier. So, definitely a better choice than these <laughs> Which, they might have something to say about that. Yeah. Uh, in April of 1895, a governor appointed a seven-member commission to make the final decision. They were going to tour and look at all of the recommended sites and come to a decision, right? The goal was to find a piece of land between 640 and 1,000 acres for approximately $15,000. After visiting the sites, the committee came to Anoka in October of 1895, and we took them on a tour. We showed them the potential land. We even set them down at the Jackson Hotel for a nine-course meal. Mm-hmm along with appetizers and things, we really tried to do this. And when the committee sat down to cast their votes in December of that same year, after nine rounds of ballots, the majority vote was cast in favor of Hastings. (laughs) Oh, man. However, there was a paperwork snacker. Uh, the vote was not officially filed. There was there was some inconsistencies, and so it was still open for grabs, and the committee met again. Somebody switched their vote, and the vote fell in favor of ANOCA this time, and we got in there with the paperwork. We got the ball rolling. We were not going to wait on this one. So this did not stop the controversy. However, it was four years before all of the rankling was done. Uh, In those years, there were injunctions. There was a joint House and Senate committee that were appointed to investigate things. There were allegations of bribery. There were two two vetoes by the governor. So years of accusations and complaints. Uh, Both sides, at the end, kind of one. We each got our way. The saga ended in 1899 with a compromise. There would be a hospital in Anoka and in Hastings. Uh, Both would be transfer rather than intake hospitals and that meant they were intended as facilities for long-term patients. You couldn't start off your life in the state hospital system by going to Anoka first. You always had to start at one of those other hospitals and then be sent here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was still an unofficial competition between Anoka and Hastings. In all of the biennial reports uh, that came out in the years afterwards, the per capita expenses for both Anoka and Hastings are listed. So it lists like, what it costs to run each per patient, basically. <coughs> and uh, Anoka is always trying to get in under Hastings, which probably led to some um, treatment issues as well that were trying to cut costs. Mm -hmm. Prior to the late 19th century, there was little that we would recognize today as treatment for mental illness. And that was truly, uh, certainly true in the years of up to Minnesota statehood. People recognized that some members in society, they just couldn't function independently and believed that the state should provide some sort of housing or care for those individuals. In the first Minnesota territorial legislature, they addressed the issue and they, quote, gave judges custody of, now this language isn't what we'd use today, idiots, lunatics, and habitual drunks who could not manage their own property. People were considered candidates for the state hospital system for a much wider variety of reasons than mental illness than we define it today. And from the beginning, the state hospital served elderly patients who would now maybe go to a nursing home for um, active care. Uh, People with epilepsy and stages of syphilis were also sent to these places. In some ways, hospitals did work to understand mental illnesses, but they just didn't have the understanding, or the resources, or the treatments available that we do today. In the 1800s, the prevailing idea was that a decent living conditions, along with a good diet, bed rest, were important things. By the 1890s, state hospital was classifying patients as acute, so suffering from something lasting less than two years, or chronic, people that were not considered curable at the time and should be given custodial care only. So because we were a transfer hospital, those uh, chronic patients were really who was coming here. And those patients, it was understood, would be staying for a long time, and they did. After the decision to build both institutions, at note and Hastings, the idea was, what, what is our hospital going to look like? Planners took advantage of the latest ideas in treatment of mental illness into the construction. And the new design proposed by Dr. W. B. Halleck in 1877, he wrote a book called Cottage System for Treating the Insane, he noted, cottage or family system does not mean the distribution of the insane among families, but their division into households of 20 or 30, and treatment in detached buildings adapted to the wants of those houses there. So there wouldn't be, in his view, a large building like those Kirkbride models. There would be smaller buildings that you could get a more individual care to some extent. It was thought that this patient's would benefit patients by putting them in a less institutionalized environment. But practically, it also helped with construction. Uh, You wouldn't have huge main corridors. You could also uh, reduce construction time by uh, constructing them over time and still use the ones that were finished while you were working on the other ones. The buildings should be of moderate size. could be completed within a single season, he said. Now the architect for these at Anoka was Clarence H. Johnston, Sr. He served for many years as the state architect for Minnesota. He designed a number of other things that we would look at today, including parts of the Minnesota State Prison at Stillwater, uh, numerous buildings at the University of Minnesota and even uh, the cattle pavilion at the State Fair. So he also designed our state hospital. And that is how construction progressed. I love this glass negative that we have that shows construction in progress out there and how much is just wild around it. On June 28th, 1899, they broke ground for the hospital and the first patients arrived in 1900. They stayed in a main building, which was completed and had a dormitory wing. The first cottage wasn't completed until 1905. In total, the campus was eventually comprised of 10 separate cottages built between 1905 and 1916 around a central courtyard. Bruce Olson, an employee at the state hospital, noted, it was rather impressive when I first got there. They referred to them as cottages, but they were really three-story mammoth brick buildings. Each cottage, as you can see, and as you've probably been around there, consisted of three levels plus a full basement. Uh, They contained bedrooms, sleeping wards, day rooms, and a dining room often a living apartment for hospital staff was located immediately on the first level. A man named Dr. Carlin lived in one of those apartments when he was working at the hospital in the 1940s. He lived in the cottage with the patients and even had patients assigned to be cleaning his rooms while he was staying there. And here you can see all 10 of the cottages circled around that courtyard. We even have blueprints in our collection that show various aspects of all of the buildings. But the aspect of the state hospital design that captures a lot of attention today are the hidden tunnels. So many stories about the web of tunnels and people getting lost in them. Uh, It's less of a web and more of a ring of them. The tunnels connect each of the cottages in a ring, um, basement to basement. They served as a shortcut between buildings, as well as a conduit for steam pipes and electrical, all the things. They're not very tall. In 1914, a newspaper praised the tunnels as a good idea and gave the idea for their conception to the superintendent there at the time, a superintendent, Coleman. And the newspaper noted that a lot of the work, especially of pick and shovel and wheelbarrows, uh, was done by strong and sturdy inmates, which definitely gives a different color to the use of them between buildings. Uh, employees had different memories of the tunnels when they were interviewed in later years. Some didn't mind them, thought they were a pretty good way to get around, or they liked how it was always warm down there because you know, the water pipes go through. Others had difficult experiences. Yeah. A woman named Shirley remembered being chased by a patient with a broom mm-hmm. down the tunnel and didn't like to be alone in them. So they are rather like, short things. So they were also used to transport patients to recovery areas, bring meals, that sort of thing. Here are some pictures of the tunnels themselves, or entrances and then one of the tunnels. Architecture is only one part of the story, but the relationships between patients and staff is another. And in that, we can divide the history of the state hospital basically into three, three sections,
2: 1900 to
0: 1920, and then we have 21 to 49, and from 1950 until its closing in 1999. We're going to go over each separately, but it's a general overview of them. There's so much more to dig in to all of these aspects. So in those early years, the facility at Anoka was initially called the First State Asylum. Hastings was second. They were the second state asylum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, First State Asylum for the Insane was the designation there. And the term Asylum was used deliberately. It was a place to care, but uh, not treatment, since treatments were unknown for the afflictions of the of the patients that were coming The patients were also referred in official reports as inmates rather than patients. And that connection to more prison terms continued in other ways. Like people were described as escaping or going AWOL. Or if they were given permission to go visit their family, they were paroled to go do so. They were visiting. So those pieces of language color how were looking at who lived there. So the first 100 inmates that they were called were all men and arrived from St. Peter Hospital on March 14, 1900. The local newspaper here reported on every detail of the arrival. The patients were, quote, met at the station by a crowd of the morbidly curious. The day was cold and a raw northwest wind was blowing. But that did not deter a crowd of four or 500 people from congregating at the depot. The depot at the time would have been uh, up 7th Avenue towards uh, where uh, the quick trip is today. Uh, the newspaper also described them saying, they were all what is known as workers, men able and willing to work and will make less trouble than any class of patients men beneath the average in looks, What <laughs> are writing in the newspaper. <laughs> and all what the doctors would term degenerates, men who have lost their minds from hereditary causes, environment, and hopelessly incurable. Upon reaching the state hospital, the men were given a tour of the facilities. they eat a meal and settled into their dorm. It was attached to an administration building That had been constructed. So, on one level of comfort, was food. This, we have a sample menu here from 1902, and it's surprisingly hearty. For breakfast, you're having hash, potatoes, gravy, butter, milk, coffee, white and graham bread. Dinners, we have roast beef, corned beef, mutton stew, um, coffee cakes, gingerbreads. So simple but hearty fare, basically. And who were those first 100 patients? They came from 30 different counties across Minnesota. A third of them are from Hennepin County, but none of them were from Anoka County, so nobody locally were related to these people. They ranged in age from 24 to 78, quite a wide range. Of the original 100, the majority of the men living lived at the hospital until they died. So only 10 of them were eventually discharged and four were transferred to other facilities. One of those original 100 lived here at the hospital for more than 50 years. Unfortunately, in a conversation like this, the topic of suicide does come up and it was not uncommon among patients The first suicide occurred just months after the patients arrived. He was a man named William Piesel, 42-year-old laborer born in Germany and hailing from Pipestone County. The state hospital here in Anoka is directly next to the Rum River, and he walked into the Rum on August 9, 1900 as a state hunter. He was the first patient buried in a cemetery for the state hospital which is on the other side, near uh, today's Anoka High School. So he was the first buried there. Escapes were easy, given there were no bars on any windows, there were no fences, people just had to walk away. Uh, They were also homesick for St. Peter. Some of them had lived at the St. Peter Hospital for many years before they were transferred here. And so to be taken away from that routine, some of them just wanted to go back to their home in St. Peter and found their way back there. Another man, John Wilson, was also convinced of a plot by another patient at the hospital that that other patient was going to kill President Roosevelt in November of 1904. So he left the hospital with the intention of warning the president. He was picked up in Minneapolis while asking for directions to Washington, (laughs) D.C. and returned to Anoka. When it opened, The hospital had 15 staff members. Superintendent John Coleman earned $1,200 per year, while his wife served as matron and earned $400 per year. Early staff included day and night engineers, a cook, a baker, bookkeeper. Someone had to run a farm, which we will talk about in a second. And there were seven attendants for the patients. By 1904, the staff had increased to 23 people and included a resident physician and 13 attendants. They worked long hours, 12, 15-hour days. Some of them required to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You were some of them living on the grounds with the patients, just constantly working. The hospital's first female patients arrived in August 1905, so five years after the men arrived. They also came from St. Peter. There were 50 of them from 15 different counties, and again, most of them are coming from Hennepin County, none of them from Anoka County, so we still don't have that connection between relatives here having somebody that they know at the hospital in our area. Ages ranged very similar. 20 to 76, and of those original 50, only one was eventually discharged. 45 of them remained at the state hospital until their deaths. Uh, What did patients do with their time during this period? Uh, Some of them had conditions that did not permit them to work or move about much, but for the most part the belief at the time was that patients did better when they had work to do even those illnesses that could not effectively be treated. And the state hospital had a farm, and many patients, especially male patients, spent their time working the land. In some ways, it can be viewed as sort of a proto-occupational therapy, but it's not yet what we would consider that today. In reality, it kept them busy, and if you think about it, most of these men are coming from rural backgrounds themselves. So working a farm, being around that sort of thing, would have been something they were familiar with. Additionally, farming right on the state hospital grounds provided a lot of the food that was needed to, treat, uh, to feed the patients and staff of the institution. So whatever they can grow is going to reduce what they need to purchase from elsewhere outside costs. Excess produce was sold for revenue, and in the farm's early days, the biggest producers of revenue were dairy, potatoes, and corn. So in addition to the crops, there were also cattle, and pigs, and chickens roaming around. In 1910, over 40 different crops were produced at the state hospital farm. And that farm ran basically from where you see the hospital today and the buildings, all the way to um, the Anoka High School and Bunker, Lake Boulevard. So quite a large space to be working with. The number of patients increased through the first two decades at the state hospital. Female patients eventually outnumbered male patients significantly. After 20 years, The patients housed 847 patients, 561 of them female, and 286 male. So that was all in the first 20 years. The period next from 1920 to nineteen forty one. Read all about it in the Anoka County Library Minute.
2: Hello, Diana Nurberg here from Anoka County Library. I've got some materials to let you know about that all have to do with mental health. Let's get started. First, we have, Are You Okay? A Guide to Caring for Your Mental Health by Katie Morton. This user-friendly guide starts with the basics. What is mental health? How do I know if I need help? And gets into more specific information on what to expect with therapy, as well as information about how to have healthier relationships. Next, we have Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health by Thomas R. Insel. This book takes a look at the overall mental health care system in our country, and who better to guide us through the ups and downs of it than Dr. Thomas Insel, who was the director for the National Institute of Mental Health from 2002 to 2015. Dr. Insel charts a path to what he believes would be a better system, which involves relying more on the three Ps, people, place, and purpose. Finally, we have where to start. A survival guide to anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges by Mental Health America. Illustrated by cartoonist Gemma Correll, with content pulled together by the nonprofit organization Mental Health America, this guide for teens brings some levity to the subject matter. The book covers many different mental health challenges, including anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder, and more. There are tips, tools, and more to help teens navigate life with mental health challenges. You can find these and many more useful resources at your local Anoka County library. Until next time, happy learning.
0: Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anokacountyhistory.org.
1: So our viewers and listeners and participants and members, all of y'alls out there. You can see the full program, like Sarah said earlier, on the Vault. That's our $5 a month subscription on the website. Uh, you can find that portal right on
0: the front page where it says Vault. If you want to learn more, though, there are other resources available. Uh, we have oral histories from a project we did in 2013 uh, that you can listen to or read the transcripts. We also have a book that Dave Niles put together all about the history of the state hospital, which we used as a resource for this program, most definitely. And he has research aids here at the museum as well. What other things?
1: Well, we have a couple artifacts that would be perfect for someone to adopt. We have patient garments as well as blueprints from the state hospital, and those would be
0: perfect for you to adopt and help preserve. There's so much more to research and talk about with the state hospital and its history. It's a part of our community and is something that a lot of people are interested in. So we look forward to learning even more in the future as people tell us their stories and how they're connected to it. We're
1: always welcoming those stories. So speaking of stories, we have another couple programs coming up, which will be chock full of interesting information one is in february on valentine's day paraphernalia i think it's
0: on the 17th is it it's on the 10th
1: how about you tell us about the program sarah
0: (laughs) nice try rebecca (laughs) it's all about valentine's day but it's coming in before so you can get all prepared on february 10th you can come in person or uh, watch digitally again and then the next month in march On March 9th, we have a program about sheriff's department and its history in Anoka County.
1: Cassie's working on a companion exhibit with that program. So you can think about things like the chaplain corps and the rangers that we didn't know existed until we tripped over those.
0: Interesting Uh, things to find in the exhibit hall. We have so many things going on. We should probably get back to it. You know, do our our, work. Get back to it. (laughs) See everybody
1: next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening,
0: everyone. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.